We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Stop Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host this week, uh, like last week, are Neil Bradley. Hi there. Uh, Juliana Barambam. Hello. And our special... Uh, Reporter at large, Harrison Curdy. Greetings. I say his name differently every week on purpose. He's a man of many names. <laughs> so this week, the Russians are coming. No, they're not. And the ISIS are coming. It's been an incredible week of hysteria, Madness. as usual. I mean, we we fairly lambasted the, the whole Russian nuke sub whatever off the coast of Sweden the week before, and no sooner had that uh, that uh, story left the headlines, and they follow up with another outrageously hysterical non-event uh, just two or three days ago, involving a Russian-made airplane being intercepted by two British RAF jets. Because it was Russian-made, well, that's the only Russian connection there was to it. It was a Latvian plane. I think it took off from England, from Birmingham, England, yeah. on its way to Italy. So it, it was neither coming to nor from Russia. On the basis of it being Russian-made, they had ORF intercepted, forced it down from the air, and threatened to shoot it down in the process. Uh I, God knows what the pilots were thinking, but they did as what they were told, of course. Yeah, it, it's just uh, pure hysteria. Um, it's it's, it's a new low. I mean, it's a low on last week's low. Yeah, it's pathetic, you know. I mean, you'd think that uh, whoever gave this order, the British military establishment or the politicians or whoever would be embarrassed by this, you know. But they're they're not capable capable of embarrassment, so... It, uh, it's up to the rest of us to be embarrassed for them, you know. And it's up to the British people to be embarrassed about being British and living under such a, a ridiculous, hysterical, totalitarian regime uh, where your vaunted leaders pee their pants at the very whisper of some kind of Russian something coming maybe to get us. Uh, of course, you know, I don't know. I like to. I prefer to look at it that they are actually that insane, and that it's not some kind of a deliberate, um, you know, attempt to scare the people. You know, to, to ramp up the fear factor and stuff. Uh, just before we go on, though, if anybody wants to call in, um, you can call in as always with your comments uh, or join the chat room. Um, we don't have a Skype call in option anymore. We might have it uh, back again in the future, but uh, we may have another option in the future for calling in, but right now it's calling in is calling the actual phone number. Uh, it's a US number, so just keep that in mind. Um, an, an RT journalist was asked for his take on what had happened. Uh, he's a British guy. I think he's a former news anchor for British mainstream media. 
He's now working with RT. And he just mentioned in passing, not trying to insinuate a plot on the part of the British government, but he says, we were sitting there two hours away from launching RT UK mm-hmm. in our new offices in London, and this, this just screams all over yeah. <laughs> the headlines. So that's, that's, the, that's the best they can come up with to try and, uh, you know, prevent... Uh, RTUK from spreading its evil propaganda. They, they spread their own evil propaganda. Something like that. All right. Well, what, uh, what, what I, I wonder, though, was this deliberate? Because, I mean, it left from the UK. There was... Yeah. No, supposedly the plane just... There was absolutely uh, nothing to hang. Supposedly the, the official story is that there was a change in uh, a flight plan. Uh, small change in, in flight plan and uh, although I also heard that the pilots didn't respond to you know requests for communication or whatever but uh, the point being that it's ridiculous you know um, to send up two, two fighter jets and threaten to shoot it down um, when this kind of thing probably happens very regularly so um, it's up it's, it's anybody's guess as to whether or not uh, they did it, did it deliberately or they did it because they were genuinely spooked because they believed their own bullshit about Russia um, but all they, it seems that they just got word or got wind of uh, the fact that it was a Russian-made Antonov plane, and that was enough for them to uh, have visions of all sorts of uh, <laughs> apocalyptic bombings and you know, etc. So, but of course, it's it's useful for them to keep the the British people um, afraid. And I think it was the day after uh, that plane. Um, incident that the British Department of Scaring the Population um, announced a severe terror threat to British citizens anywhere in the world, uh, especially if you were traveling and going on holiday or traveling anywhere in the world. This wasn't a specific uh, threat. It was a generalized severe threat, uh, amorphous, if you like, just of just kind of there were people who were being told in the, in the British media to be afraid of terrorism anywhere in the world outside of the UK. Um, it's it just it just struck me as so amazingly Orwellian. I mean, that's such a bad word to use because Orwell had no idea uh, of just how bad it would get. You know. Um, just how insidious it would get, um, but that's the best kind of reference we have. Uh, Orwell's book, nineteen eighty four, that posits this dystopian kind of Big Brother future where everybody's watched and everybody's just scared, and there's a fake uh, threat out there that's regularly hyped to scare the population into accepting uh, warmongering and wars for profit. And that's exactly the world we live in today. That's exactly what's happening. It's amazing to see it. So, uh, yeah, that was interesting as well. It seemed to be maybe it was tied. The two were linked in some way. Yeah. And he used very vague language, actually. And the warning is like, it's really like Orwell. You know, you're saying things, but they, there's a little thing here. What they said, it says, there is considered to be a heightened threat of terrorist attack globally, yeah. so general, against UK interests and British nationals from groups or, or individuals motivated by the conflict in Iraq and Syria. Um, mm-hmm. Groups or individuals motivated, but yeah, you're talking about yourselves here? But you notice that they didn't say uh, humans. 
Because yeah. <laughs> by implication, it was animals, you know, really anything, you know, groups of tornadoes or... Yeah, just of, things around there, yeah. you know, motivated by the conflict. Yeah, yeah. incoming hailstorms, you know. So just be afraid, no matter what, just be afraid, don't travel, or if you travel, just be afraid. Yeah. And considered by whom, it is considered... It's like, they won't even take responsibility for being the ones that are saying that what they are considering this. Hypocrites. <laughs> yep. Well, the, the British Foreign Office think they're gods. Yeah. Um, ugh, creepy people. Yeah, it's nebulous, it's vague, and it's... And it's, it's farcical. It's farcical. Who, who buys it? Well, uh, while these threats go out, they have this kind of... If you actually follow the story, that it's kind of like as soon as the initial statement is made, that the filler takes up the rest of the what, what you see and hear about it in the media. I mean, the main thrust that I'm getting from this RAF interception of the Russian-made Latvian plane is, oh, did you hear? They left. They they, they created a sonic boom. Everyone's supposedly talking about the sonic boom. Yeah, over three or four counties, uh, i.e. not a sonic boom. Uh-huh. Because you don't hear a sonic boom over the distance that they were describing, uh, and it was just one boom. So, I mean, it brings that's back... A, that's, yeah. It brings back the idea of um, that... Um, uh, what's his name? Klub's. Klub's. Victor Klub. Uh, I have it here. Yeah. We do not need the celestial threat to disguise Cold War intentions, we need, rather, we need the Cold War to disguise celestial intentions. Exactly. So we have a new Cold War and we have celestial intentions going off all over the place and they're using the new Cold War to hide that threat. And even right down, I mean, you can't get any more specific than that. They're not just saying the commies are coming or the new commies are coming or Putin's coming. They're actually using the sound of a British jet that was sent up to intercept a possibly Russian flying bomb uh, to cover up what was most likely an overhead meteorite explosion. So that's very very specific. You know, it's Mm -hmm. funny. We found that... How many years ago did we put that quote up on SOT? Like, was it 2010, maybe? Around then, but... Earlier. Earlier than that, and... It's just funny how how things have changed in the past several years and how much closer to reality that quote has become when you look at it. Well, we we saw a striking parallel because the war on terror yeah. was in full swing. But now with which Russia Which suffice involved. as the equivalent to the Cold War. Yeah. Now they're like, hell, let's just use both. Yeah. War on ISIS, terror, whatever. Mm-hmm. Jihadi, jihadi. And pull out the old versions are coming. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, um, and meanwhile, while they're doing that, they are um, continuing to arm and uh, fund and train these uh, jihadis that are in Iraq and Syria that they were supposed to be afraid of. The U.S. is, I mean, (laughs) there's enough, more than enough evidence to show that the U.S. government, either directly or indirectly through its through its bosom buddies in Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the other little micro-states, corrupt micro-states in the the Gulf, that they're funding and training and arming these uh, so-called 
jihadis or rebels, etc. They call them rebels when they want to fund them and train them and arm them. And when they want to use them to scare people, they're called jihadis or ISIL. Um, but there's a report just this week. Uh, I mean, as I said, there's lots of evidence going back several years that they've been doing this for several years. And I mean mainstream evidence here, uh, even from kind of the U.S. government itself sending, you know, $500 million to the Free Syrian Army. But um, there's a report just this week. I think it was just a couple of months ago that, that uh, Obama authorized an extra $500 million for the rebels in Syria. And there's reports this week that two of the main rebel groups receiving weapons from the United States to fight both the regime and jihadist groups in Syria have surrendered to al-Qaeda. Uh, so the U.S. and its allies were supposed to be relying on these two groups. One of them is called the Syrian Revolutionary Front. Uh, it reminds me, actually, if anybody's ever seen The Life of Brian, of how they do a, a parody of the different kind of uh, uh, fronts that's, that spring up, you know, the the People's Liberation Front for the liberation of whatever, and then variations of those words just <laughs> just mixed up together, you know, and they're all fighting with each other, you know. Um, but anyway, the Syrian Revolutionary Front uh, became, uh, it was supposedly meant to be fighting against the Islamic State of Iraq, but this is just bullshit. They... they, they they talk about it in such simplistic terms when, yeah. they, when, when on the ground it's extremely complicated and there's different factions and, you know. But anyway, they, uh, these two groups uh, surrendered their military bases and weapons, uh, which were given to them, hundreds of millions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer money used to buy weapons to give to these people and they have now given them to Al-Qaeda. So where are all you people who are having a conniption about 9-11, you know, on 9-11, and since then, and hating on Al Qaeda, and where are all the people who were screaming and cheering in front of the uh, White House on the night that Osama bin Laden was supposedly killed by that crack uh, gang of crackheads um, from the, from the U.S. military? Uh, where are all these people that were just, you know? In, in in raptures, basically outside the White House at the uh, at the at the supposed death of Osama bin Laden, uh, where are they now? Uh, can I speak to them? Can we get some of them on the line? I just want to tell them that you know the money that you pay the government in taxes, your, your government is giving that to effectively giving that to Al Qaeda. Uh, shouldn't you celebrate that as well? Get out in front of the White House and celebrate it. Or maybe you should protest it. No, 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 forget about protesting it. It's not really in the American blood to protest things. They just lie back and... Uh, I think they're confused. Well, I'm spelling out pretty clearly here. Your government is funding Al-Qaeda, the people who attacked you on 9-11. Want to do something about it? No. Okay, we'll move on. Yes, moving on. Um, who won the World Series this week? Nobody cares. <laughs> there was a World Series this week? <laughs> yeah, I think it's like this baseball grand finale in the U.S. That's yeah. news. That's newsworthy. Yeah, exactly. But uh, so these, this, this gang, uh, this group, that was, they had American uh, anti-tank weapon, weapons, anti-tank missiles. These are very powerful, very modern. Um, uh, they're officially anti-tank because they can penetrate up to 10 or 15 or whatever uh, centimeters or of of um of armor, 
but they obviously can be used against um, buildings or anything else, really. So uh, this is kind of like the, the latest and greatest American military equipment is now in the hands of Al-Qaeda. And it's entirely foreseeable, or was entirely foreseeable, that that would happen. But, of course, the American government didn't care and, in fact, wanted it to happen. So this is just another another uh, rat line of... Um, of of funneling weapons to um, these groups that they can't officially admit to uh, funding, like ISIS and ISIL, etc., etc., and Al Qaeda. Uh, so what they do is they just throw a bunch in there amongst them and say they're being given to the good guys, the moderates, quote unquote, and they know they're going to end up in the hands of the dominant group, which is. Uh, these jihadis, and they're dominant because they're being funded. So there you go. What was the name of that group? Uh, the one that one of the ones that had gone over, surrendered. Yeah, the one of them is a Syrian Revolutionary Front. Yeah, exactly. And just a couple of weeks ago on the show, I'd I'd quoted three uh, three of the the like top commanders and military positions. The guys in like uh, in that one and the. Um, Oh, there's another one. I can't remember the name. But basically, these colonels and commanders saying that they were either working with ISIS or had truces in place with ISIS. Mm-hmm. So this stuff has been around for, and that and that was old news when when I said it. So these guys have been involved with ISIS for months, and it's like it's been out in the open. It's been available for people to see that. It's been so obvious. And now they surrender. Can't see me doing the quote marks in the air. They surrender to ISIS and all that money and all that, all those resources. Go. It's just it's ridiculous. Islamic State uh, officially, officially in quotes, put out a job advertisement this week. <laughs> they need someone to help them broker. Uh, they need two jobs. They need someone to help them broker sell the oil. Uh-huh. They, they from the refineries they've captured. Yeah. Secondly, they need a crisis manager to help fix some of the refineries <laughs> that have been destroyed. Yeah. I mean, that's just like, if they're in a position to do that, if they're in a position to publish like a glossy magazine and run websites, mm-hmm. if they're in a position to apparently this week alone welcome an extra 15,000 new recruits, how in the hell is this happening under the nose of yeah. the great totalitarian Western surveillance mm-hmm. state? Oh, we're just reporting the facts as we see them. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Well, about the oil refineries, um, New Eastern Outlook just put out a, an article by a Syrian girl. I can't remember her real name, but uh, she was commenting on uh, in the in the mainstream press these past few days. There have been reports that uh, the U.S. is planning to basically bomb the Syrian pipelines, and the reason they're doing this is to stop ISIS from making all that money from selling that oil on the black market. Mm. Now, there's a few things here. First of all. Apparently, ISIS makes up to $2 million a day from selling this oil. Now, that number comes from one private organization in based in Colorado, I think, that has come up with that number. So it's totally unverified itself, that number of $2 million a day. It's, it's one American corporation that has put that number out into the press. So we have no idea how much money they're actually making selling this oil. I think they are. They probably are selling this oil. There's been several well, reports that they have. Well, been. the question is, how are they selling it? Exactly. Because the Syrian government isn't allowed to sell mm-hmm. its oil. Uh, it's prevented through sanctions from selling any oil it has uh, by Western, Western governments, in particular the U.S. So the question is, who are they selling it to? And, uh, you know, 
Well, it's, the story is that, well, first of all, look at the rationale. So they want, the U.S. wants to bomb Syria's oil pipelines to stop ISIS from making money from selling this oil in the black market. Okay, so first of all, um, okay, they're selling it on the black market. Who's buying this oil? Mm-hmm. Well, um, and how is it being sold? Well, apparently what they do is they put it in trucks and they send these tanker trucks across the border into Turkey from where it is sold. Now, if the problem was really ISIS making money from this oil, how to stop them from making money? Well, first of all, you could find out who's buying the oil and punish them, take them to a to you know an international court for funding terrorism for buying this oil in the black market. Second, you could target the the very obvious convoys of oil moving from Syria into Turkey. Mm-hmm. So obviously, it is not to stop ISIS from making money; it is to bomb the oil pipelines. And uh, like like you just said, Joe, the or. Like you said, Neil, about them, the the job advertisement, like the U.S. has already bombed at least one, maybe several oil refineries that ISIS was allegedly using. Now, Syrian organizations have said that those were not held by ISIS, or at least they weren't major um, uh, major headquarters or operations for ISIS. That these, so it was, it wasn't an, a target ISIS operation. The the purpose of these this plan and the, the bombings that have already happened is to de- destroy the Syrian oil infrastructure. Yeah, and that's it. It has nothing to that's do with very money. interesting. That takes me back to some analysis I read where the guy was saying, "What uh, apart from being Muslim countries, what Iraq, Syria, Libya, and others who've been bombed have in common?" is uh, Iran, too, in terms of its mm-hmm. sanctions. What they all have in common is that they are potentially, or uh, they're either in the oil market or they're potentially coming into mm-hmm. it. And that if there was a, if you could give an overarching U.S. goal, it's to suppress the amount of oil or to release, to regulate it in this mm-hmm. manner by periodically bombing the crap out of their oil infrastructure. It keeps the U.S. in control of oil, or at least to the extent of being able to have a kind of a lever exactly. on, world, on the world oil price, which they set. And if, if you're thinking of it that way, well, if you can control the valve in the Middle East by literally blowing up the valves mm-hmm. now, now and then. Yeah, if you can't control it, destroy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's to, and it's obviously the U.S. has no oil reserves in the Middle East, so you're talking here about Saudi Arabia benefiting directly from being the only safe uh, oil-producing country are one of the only ones uh, among a few of, of um, being able to sell it to, to the West and regulate the price thereby. But it also obviously links directly into um, to Russia and uh, Russia's attempts to, you know, uh, start doing business, more business, and China also in, in the Middle East with Iran, with Syria, etc. Um, and they want to stop them from doing that. They want to isolate them. And I mean, we we were talking last week about how Saudi Arabia most likely deliberately uh, dropped the price or stopped uh, uh, um, or increased production to reduce the price of uh, of oil as a way to try and put pressure on Russia because then Russia has to sell its oil on the at the international kind of going rate which dropped in the past uh, month or two from over like one hundred ten dollars down to almost eighty dollars. Which is apparently at the limit of what Russia can um, has budgeted for for the next couple of years. 
in terms of its returns, you know, so this is economic warfare. Uh, there's, there's many different agendas being served or several different agendas being served. Uh, but I think all of it, what all of it comes down to is, uh, U.S. and Western hegemony mm-hmm. in the world through, uh, largely through economics. And the way they enforce that economic hegemony is, uh, through war or so-called war, which is really just bombing. And they've been destroying other things. I mean, they bombed recently a dam. You know, water uh, basically was the source of water for thousands of Syrians. So it's not just the oil. It's just right. whatever excuse they get to destroy the infrastructure there so that yeah. Syria will become basically a land with nothing yeah. to live on. Yeah, it's exactly what they They finally doing. got what they wanted <clears throat> yeah, Syria. Not, yeah, of course, it's not about... Yeah. It's not about um, these kind of wars that the U.S. has waged and, and the Brits before them uh, have waged are have nothing to do, generally speaking, with um, fighting uh, an actual war against another country. It's about destroying countries uh, because those countries are uh, deemed to be a threat in some way. And the way you destroy a country is uh, you destroy its infrastructure and the target of that ultimately is the population. So... Generally speaking, all wars have been wars against the civilian population of countries, not against standing armies. Has anyone been able to find out what the Assad government has said about no. any of this? I haven't heard a single... What, you mean ever? Well, the Assad's said plenty. In the uh, past couple well, of months? Well, in the past, uh, since, since the Syrian civil war. No, I mean since ISIS came online. The I last few he, months. Yeah, he's... he's, he's said that they're basically mercenaries. Uh, paid. Okay, no, but what does he say about U.S. airstrikes, like the ones that are almost in Damascus? Well, well, he said that... that he, he could shoot those U.S. planes down. Yeah. yeah. He hasn't so far. No. Is that tacit agreement? Well, I'm not sure there, there, are, there is mu- that much NATO bombing of, of Syrian uh, direct, you know, uh, bombing of... of um, Syrian infrastructure. Uh, that's what they use. Um, that's what they've... They, they, the plan they had on it several years ago was to use uh, mercenaries, essentially ISIL Western mercenaries, to go in and, and fight this unconventional war for them uh, because they were they were chicken shit, which is a term that we've heard uh, this week as well. Uh, they're scared, essentially, of uh, provoking uh, bigger powers like Russia and even Iran from, uh, from interfering, and they don't want to cross that line. I mean, they bombed the crap out of Libya because Libya is far away and was isolated. Uh, but Syria is too close. Uh, it's right on. It's you know, it's um, it's right there on, on the on, obviously on the border with Iraq and Iran. Uh, it's too close to essentially Russian interests for, and the Russians have said explicitly that um, that they would respond to any direct attack on Syria yeah. by NATO forces. Yeah, and uh, Lavrov just traveled to Syria last Tuesday, and there's just a short news report about what he said, and basically just reiter- reiterating that Syria has Russia's total support in this thing. And it was it was phrased very vaguely, but basically saying that Russia supports Syria in this, and that we'll basically, uh, we will help uh, Syria reestablish its, or keep its, like, political uh, institutions. Yeah. Like, in the context of ISIS slash yeah. war on terror, yeah. but... I don't hear them, I don't hear anyone just coming out and saying, well, the U.S. is now more or less doing what 
it was going to do. Like, it, are they only doing limited airstrikes? I heard of one today in Raqqa, and I looked at Raqqa on the map, and it's center of the country. This isn't a border skirmish. You mean a NATO, a NATO strike? A U.S. airstrike? Yeah. Well, as long as they they keep it to supposedly ISIL targets. But, I mean, obviously, it's, it would be obvious if they, if they came out and started bombing uh, Syria in any concerted way yeah. against the Syrians. I mean, it wouldn't, it would be, uh, it would be obvious that that's what they're doing. Now they're kind of like trying to work it so they can, we're bombing ISIL type thing, but obviously they can only go so far with that ruse until it becomes obvious what they're really doing. I wonder if there's something going on behind the scenes though, because last week there was this um, request from Syria to have a free trade zone next to Russia, and it's not in Assad's interest to say much right now, because whatever he says is going to be twisted or, you know, I mean, and Russia is playing the the defense card. I I checked that out. Uh, Syria is applying to join the Eurasian Union. Mm -hmm. They first started talking about it in the beginning of 2011, before they started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why it all comes back to Russia yeah. and what Russia is attempting to do to integrate essentially Eurasia uh, into one as much as possible economic block, which it should be by nature because it's one contiguous landmass and it has more than enough resources to uh, provide for everybody on it. It would be, uh, it is effectively the wealthiest chunk of land on the planet and the biggest. And, um, and this is what the Americans and the, you know, the empire builders uh, cannot countenance. They're, they're horrified at the very prospect of it. And they've seen it coming uh, quite a long time ago. And everything we're seeing now in the Middle East is to try and prevent that from happening and to secure their own positions of power. And it's ridiculous because it's going to fail. Uh, facts on the ground will eventually intercede. You know, and the U.S. doesn't have enough bombs to to to, yeah. to blow up the meantime, hard reality. We have to watch all this slaughter. That's just was horrifying about yeah. it. I mean, yeah. I, well, and people are are not going to get angry about the right things. They're not. I mean, you. I, I bet that if we make a poll right now, they'd be saying things like, "Well." They're just incompetent. You know, they gave the weapons to the wrong people. They did this, you know. They never get angry. Mm. They'll just say they're incompetent. Yeah, you of know, course. They, that's, that's, because that's, the government is supposed to protect you, right? That's, that's, so, that's what they said in 9-11. I mean, yeah, yeah that's, their, that's their, their answer of last recourse, you know. Uh, whenever they can't think of any other bullshit answer to give you, they say, oh, we're just not, we're, we're stupid. We didn't know. Oh, sorry. Oops. You know, that that's what you get. And people are like, oh, our lovable, stupid leaders will forgive them this time, you know. Uh, or we'll exchange them for somebody else and things will be better. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Talking about terrorism and all that business, there's, uh, as is usual uh, in these cases, uh, the Ottawa, quote unquote, terror attack, uh, there have been a couple of further uh, revelations about that, as I said, that usually happens uh, in the week or weeks after something like that happens. More details come out uh, that expose the fact that it was some kind of a manipulated incident in some way. Um, the first one was that the the picture that everybody saw of of the 
the shooter, Bibu, um, he's, you know, he's got the hair, black hair with a scarf over his face and a gun. And uh, someone noticed that he was standing in front of uh, <clears throat> the uh, war memorial where he mm. killed the soldier. Um, and this was supposedly at the time. So the official narrative is that some tourist or a person in the street, a citizen, took a picture of him standing there. This was either before or after he had shot the guy. Either one seems bizarre. He's going to pose for a picture before he shoots the guy or he's going to pose for a picture after he shoots the guy. Anyway, the picture was taken at the memorial because they recognized the structure behind him. And it was also uh, evident from that picture. If you look at the picture online, you can see that there's a small black square on the bottom right-hand uh, corner of the picture and someone identified that uh, small black square, small black square, as the zoom function on a BlackBerry uh, phone camera, camera phone. Um, so the story goes that the citizen who took that picture of of the shooter, a policeman came along with his BlackBerry and took a picture of that picture on the screen of the digital camera, and then circulated it to all of the police officers in Ottawa and but the the mystery is, is how it got out to the media because that picture was available I think later that day uh, the first time I saw it on that day was when they were reporting that ISIS had put it on their Twitter account. exactly well that's the thing the thing is the media got it mm-hmm. and uh, the the media is on record the, the Canadian media is on record of having said I think specifically the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation said that they got it from U.S. sources. Yeah, his, on the same day they got the picture oh, from the U.S. Picture. sources. Okay. On and um, so and at the same time, supposedly ISIL got it. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, ISIL U.S. What's the difference? Uh, yeah, so. This is a bit of a conundrum here, you know, that no one seems to be answering as to how this picture was circulated and by whom. And if it was taken by a, an Ottawa policeman on his camera and sent around to the Ottawa police departments, that suggests then that if the U.S. got it, they are monitoring or have, I mean, it's probably no surprise that they have some kind of relationship with them. And the U.S. intelligences got it and sent it back to Canadian um media outlets mm-hmm. and also at the same time apparently send it to ISIL so yeah. they could use it for propaganda. Well, you know that, that you know what that means though? It means that ISIL has infiltrated the Canadian government and police. Uh, and the CIA. Forces. Yeah, and yeah. the CIA. They to root them out. Yeah. But the other thing is, is that there's a there's um, Globe and Mail actually which is a mainstream Canadian newspaper the Globe and Mail uh, did a report they uh, well actually it was on the Global Mail website, so it must have been at a TV station like uh, CBC or something like that. Uh, did a a piece on uh, on the news about the attack, uh, maybe a day, a couple of days after, and they showed uh, the hall, you know, the footage of the shooting in the in the mm-hmm. Parliament building, and um, but they also appear to have gone in themselves afterwards. And the guy is pointing to the screen as the video is playing, and it shows uh, up at the end of that hall where you see the the video footage of the shooting taking place, supposedly where Bebo was. Uh, there's a there's an alcove to the left, just in front of the library, the door into the library, um, 
and he's pointing to the wall and there's a plaque on the wall and around the plaque he points he, he points out that these are bullet holes and there are marks around kind of a sort of semicircular uh, pattern around the plaque on the wall and he says this is where Bibi was standing and where he was shot and you can see the bullet holes in this in this wall uh, uh, and that's he counts them nine bullet holes and he says that's not counting how many bullet bullet holes were in Bibu. So um, I saw reference on a website and I looked it up myself. Uh, if you go to Google Google Maps, Google Maps has a street view inside the Parliament, and you can go in. You can walk in up that hallway. And you can go into that alcove on the right, on the left, and look at that wall that this reporter from CBC was reporting as the bullet holes. And you see that those marks are there on Google Maps. And the date of when that was taken was 2013. So those marks were on the wall in 2013, but the Canadian media was pointing out very clearly, very explicitly, very emphatically that these were bullet holes and this is where Bibu was shot when they were there over a year ago. And I have I have a picture of it. I went on Google Maps myself and I took a picture of it. And I have the, the news report as well showing this. So, I mean, at the very least, it shows that the Canadian media were making shit up. Mm-hmm. They were probably given that information by someone, probably uh, Canadian intelligence, uh, CSIS or whatever its name, or ISIL or ISIS. What, uh, it's ISIS backwards, isn't it? Canadian intelligence. <laughs> anyway... So they're all bullshitting. They're they're creating a narrative here. They're creating this kind of uh, you know uh, emotional kind of like dramatic uh, scenario. This is where hey, the shooter was taken down. Dramatic by a sergeant at arms. Here's yeah. the bullet holes in the wall. Go and put your fingers in them. You know, um, and it's all and that part of it at least is bullshit. So it's dramatic reconstruction. Yeah, and they made it up. So there you go. And so when they're doing that kind of thing, it kind of suggests that the entire thing is in some way manipulated or made up. When we watch the, the the CCTV footage of of him running around, I mean, you watch him and he's he's running the entire time. He runs to the car, he gets in the car, he gets out, he runs. Mm-hmm. He's running the entire time, and to, just to to picture him in front of the like posing for a photograph yeah. in front of the yeah. the uh, memorial, exactly, it's, yeah. it's just it's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, absolutely. It looks that photo was probably an archive photo that one of his handlers in Canadian intelligence had taken beforehand. You know, one of his so-called. Uh, a person he didn't know was from Canadian intelligence, but who was working for Canadian intelligence, and he said, "Go down and take a take a picture of him, you know, at the scene of the future crime type thing." And then they would have that, and he passed it back to Canadian intelligence, and then they had it set up to use afterwards, you know, sheep dipped basically. Um, but on the yeah, they're running around the picture of him running around. I just wanted to like take that and cut the audio, although there's no audio on it. I think there's a guy talking over one of them, but I, mean, I wanted to cut the audio out and put in the Benny Hill. Uh, sound music, you know. I don't know if anybody knows of any hell sound music uh, or soundtrack, but uh, on, on V for Vendetta on the comedy <coughs> show, that kind of music. Yeah, that kind of music. Yeah, I'm running around, you know. Um, I might do that. Anyway. <laughs> no, that's the circus music. <laughs> well, that would do as well. <laughs> so you guys weren't spooked by that event, huh? I see. No, it didn't work on us anyway, but it worked on a lot of people, I'm sure. The brave sergeant at arms, just calmly walking around. He was like, it was like Clint Eastwood, you know. They portrayed him as like a Clint Eastwood kind of ty- character, you know. He dives to make my the day, firing shots as he's in midair. Yeah, he was like, unloads <laughs> yeah. his gun, calmly gets up, goes back to his office, reloads his gun, go back. 
into the um, knocked on the door of the chamber where all the the the, the wet trousered uh, politicians, including Harper, were hiding and said, "It's okay, guys." It's all safe now. You can come out. I took care of the bad guy, and they all just broke into like rapturous applause. They did break into rapturous applause at that point, apparently, but a lot of them cried as well. And uh, yeah, and then the credits rolled, and uh, that was the end of that Hollywood production. So. Well, the Canadian opposition leader has since pointed out the flagrantly obvious that um, no, technically, what took place was a crime. He should have been treated as a criminal. His point was that he should not have been summarily executed. Yeah, but it was, that wasn't the point. It was, well, it was set up as a terror attack. You're not going to bring that in now, are you? But the very fact that he would say that... Who said that? Um, the leader of the yeah. Oh, yeah, the leader of the opposition. Yeah, yeah. well, he's, yeah, I mean, he's, at the very least he should have said that, but it's like, shut up, will you? That's... Jeez, get with the script here. Oh, yeah, he was he's, basically, like, uh, shouted down when he said that. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, you know... They, well, they, they it's spent, fair. It's on the record. Yeah. They spent a lot of time putting this together as a terror attack, and then somebody's going to come in and say, oh, it should have been just a criminal. No big deal here. Are you joking? You know how many man hours went into setting <laughs> that whole thing up? Are you shitting me? <laughs> That's not shut, how it happens. Shut up and sing the anthem. Exactly. Just shut up and sing the Canadian anthem. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. that's yes, that's Ottawa. Um, uh, lots of other stuff going on. Well, um, I want to point ahead. something out that I just uh, there's a, a couple trends that I've noticed in the past week or so. Just reports of things that have happened either recently or in past years. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, there was um, an an American-born journalist, uh, Serena Shim working for press TV mm-hmm. and working in Syria and she was killed. Of course, it's got very little, if well, not no media coverage in the mainstream Western media, considering that she was American born, but she had just, she, she had been re- releasing reports and, and said she had photographs and what she'd seen was um, basically ISIL militants crossing the Turkish border in trucks labeled uh, for certain NGOs. So basically they were funneling these terrorists across the border in um, under the front of non-governmental organizations. Now, when we look at one of the things that's been going on in Russia for years is that Russia has allegedly, allegedly been clamping down on civil society and, and human rights and stamping out all these foreign NGOs. And of course, um, like we know what's going on there. It's um, these are the same NGOs uh, that foster revolutions and, uh, you know, color-coded revolutions all over the world. So these are intelli- basically intelligence fronts. Um, but what's interesting, so that we, we have that, um, and it's uh, it's come out in a couple different reports recently um, uh, in funny ways. Now, uh, Joe, you'd mentioned the, the chicken shit reference. Well, maybe we'll get to that, but... Speaking of Israel, there was a report that was just reported on, a 1987 report, that Israeli charities operating in the United States were using money that they received from the United States to fund Israel's nuclear program at Dimona. And, of course, that is totally illegal. Um, So, again, a charity, an Israeli charity, funneling money to programs, 
this isn't quite as egregious, but there's a report that just came out that the uh, the Red Cross was using many of its resources, money and um, material, not for helping in disasters. For example, uh, it was Hurricane Sandy and another one, um, 2011, 2010, a few years ago. And that one of the statistics was that they used 40% of their vehicles, so their emergency response vehicles, were used solely for the purpose of PR, press, so for photographs and stuff like that. So um, the NGOs are in the news lately. Of course, they're also uh, in the news for um, basically being behind the Occupy movement in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. So it's just all over. We've got all these NGOs. And the first thing you think is that when you hear the like things like Human Rights Watch and Red Cross and maybe less to a lesser extent, like the what's it called? The National Democratic the National Endowment for Democracy. Yeah. Like, and you think... Ned if you, USAID. For the average person just hearing these names, they think, oh, these are good institutions. Mm. Amnesty International, yeah. Things we can get behind. But what, what you've all got to realize is that all of these have other agendas. They're not mm. They're not the, like, rose, rosy do-gooder organizations that they portray themselves as. They've and all they're got not public organizations. No. So the they have on. names that they sound vaguely semi-state or state-backed. Yeah. They're not. They're oligarchs' money, mm -hmm. always. And that's why Russia has been shutting these guys down in in that country. It's like because they are like they are this. They're like foreign intelligence agencies. That's how they exactly. operate. Absolutely. They have, they have intelligence agents working for them yeah. within them. Yeah. So I mean, they should just be exposed for what they are and thrown out on their backsides. You know. Um, yeah, I mean, people probably know about the the chicken shit thing, and that ties into um, what you just said about uh, uh, American uh, media being uh, co-opted essentially by Israel, by Israeli, uh, by Israeli government, uh, Israeli government funding uh, funding money to U.S. Uh, media corporations, and you know newspapers, magazines, etc., to get them to provide a pro-Israel slant on various different uh, uh, things that are things that are important to Israel, like uh, killing Palestinians and stuff. Uh, so that uh, how that ties into the chicken shit thing was that uh, obviously Netanyahu was supposedly called a chicken shit by which means that he's a scaredy cat. Uh, by an unnamed Obama uh, administration official uh, earlier this week. And um, it was reported by uh, a journalist. He's actually he's called an American journalist, but he's really an Israeli or American Israeli journalist. He used to work uh, as an Israeli prison guard in Israel. His name's Jeffrey Goldberg, and he works for, he's a journalist now for The Atlantic, which is a, a magazine in the U.S., and he published this article uh, this week in The Atlantic where he quoted an unnamed Obama official calling uh, Bibi uh, Netanyahu uh, a chicken shit because he he's a chicken shit in, in a good way and a bad way, but he's all around chicken shit apparently, you know. He won't uh, bomb Iran, which according to this guy was good, but he also is too scared to take any uh, courageous uh, moves or, or approach to the... Um, 
the Israeli Palestinian conflict. He won't give any concessions. He basically is just, according to this guy, concerned only for his his political future. Um, but the interesting thing is that this was published in the Atlantic by an Israeli who has connections directly to the Israeli government and is, you know, is uh, he, he has access basically to the U.S. government and to the Israeli government, and he publishes these uh, these revelations, these. Uh, nasty things that supposedly someone in Obama's administration was saying about Netanyahu, which sounds very suspicious that, like, oh, well, he just was allowed to do that. No, it sounds like he deliberately did that, which uh, the Israelis have got to the point now where the Israelis always do, th- do things by way of deception, right? They're, they're a small country. They need to, they can't uh, approach things head on with uh, power or, or force because they don't have a lot of it or any of it. So uh, they manipulate. They're masters of manipulation. And this is one maybe example of manipulation where they get this guy to reveal what somebody in the Obama administration said, and then that creates a bit of a, a shitstorm uh, in the Obama administration and amongst all the Israel firsters and the Israel lobby in the U.S. who then all come down hard on uh, Obama, etc., his government, and it's all good for Israel in the end because Israel gets more concessions. Uh, Israel, uh, the, the Obama's criticized, John Kerry's criticized, everybody in the government in the U.S. is criticized, Congress, all the Israel firsters in Congress who have all been bought off by the Mossad because uh, they have pictures of them, you know, you know, in compromising positions, you know, interfering with hamsters or something. And, <laughs> and that's why they're all pro-Israel. <clears throat> so um, these people all then, it's a groundswell of support and uh, uh, for Israel because someone said something bad about Netanyahu in the Obama administration. So on the face of it, it looks like, oh, Netanyahu got exposed. It's a hit for the Israelis. Well, no, it's actually the opposite. They actually get uh, to put pressure on the U.S. government as a result of this amazing revelation. Um, And then Haaretz reminds everybody. Yeah, Haaretz reminds, this guy claims that he just did it because... uh, he said it was an example of, uh, or it, it was meant as an analogy or whatever for, uh, in this cartoonist's opinion, uh, he that Netanyahu was arrogantly and wantonly destroying Israel's ties with the U.S., leading to a disaster on the scale of 9-11. That's why I produced this cartoon of Netanyahu smiling in his little plane, flying into one trade center, one World Trade Center tower probably. Um, it's interesting that it, you know, did he, okay, he has an answer for why he did it. Maybe that's the real reason he did it. But certainly, it's quite provocative at this time, and especially to people in the U.S. who know what 9-11 was really all about and how it went down, and that had nothing to do with 19 hijackers. Uh, and then following up uh, on that, I think the day, maybe it was the day before, but around the same time, Netanyahu responded to this chicken shit comment uh, by saying... Um, by complaining that he was simply being attacked for trying to protect Israel, and that uh, he said that when there are pressures on Israel to concede its security, the easiest thing to do is to concede. This is him being uh, in response to the criticism about him not being proactive with the peace process, the dead peace process. So he said, "You get a round of applause, ceremonies on grassy knolls." And then come the missiles and the tunnels, i.e. then comes the Palestinian threat again. This was his uh, response to why he doesn't engage in the peace process and in fact is very much anti-peace process. But it was that reference to ceremonies and grassy knolls. Grassy knoll, 
Netanyahu is a very fluent English speaker. Uh, Grassy Knowles doesn't have any connotation or any doesn't. It's not the kind of word anybody would use, except uh, in one context. In one context, because if you're a really good English speaker and you're very well versed in in Western American culture and stuff, you know what Grassy Knowles refers to. So you don't use it. If you're not very good at English, where are you ever going to come across that term, Grassy Knoll? It doesn't, you know, it's a lawn. Even the reference that he's trying to make, he, I mean, it seems to be if it was ceremonies on lawns, that would refer back to the Oslo Peace Accords when um, when Arafat and... Uh, um, Sh- Shamir? Per- Perez? No, no. Um, <laughs> I can't remember his name. Rabin. Yes, Yitzhak Rabin. Shook hands on the White House lawn. That's the most obvious reference where you get a ceremony because they got a ceremony for their peace process at the time in 1983 and they shook hands on a White House lawn, a garden, grass, call it whatever you want, but grassy knoll. Yeah. Knoll, who knows the word knoll except in connection with the JFK assassination. So the fact that Bibi Netanyahu wrote or, or said that publicly, it's just, I can't find any other way to explain it other than it was a direct reference to JFK assassination, which means the assassination of a U.S. president, which means a threat to assassinate the U.S. president because he or someone in his administration is calling Netanyahu a chicken shit, which seems a bit extreme, but then Netanyahu is a nutbag. I, yeah, that's, that's how I read it. It's a threat to Obama. Remember JFK. The yeah. same can happen to you. Yeah. And when you look, so we've got the, the 9-11 cartoon with Bibi flying his plane in the World Trade Center. And we've got Bibi himself making a reference to the grassy knoll. And, oh, just wait a second. Both of those events have very suspicious ties and clues that Mossad was involved. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Now, <laughs> Let me see if uh, we might have a call on the line. Do we have a caller on the line? Yeah, hi. This is uh, Kent from West Virginia. And, hey, uh, Kent. Following well, up on, yeah, following up on the um, the uh, the cartoon and also the Grassy Knoll reference. Um, you may not know, um, but here um, on Halloween evening, believe it or not, Al Jazeera aired a program called "The Day Israel Attacked America" about the mm-hmm. USS Liberty and. Um, mm-hmm. Um, so that's a sort of a triumphant of, uh, you know, three events there. And what's what's interesting, I was not able to see it. I'm not on the um, satellite or cable propaganda system, but I read a synopsis in Al Jazeera. Now, I've heard very, I don't know what you're, you know, I've heard various, you know, allegations about Al Jazeera being controlled opposition, this sort of thing. But um, uh, according to the synopsis, they had... Um, released uh, tapes of, you know, the uh, like cockpit to uh, control station tapes of the jets uh, incorporated into that. Uh, now, I don't know whether that's true. That's what it said on the Algeria website. I haven't seen it. Now, you have to wonder where they got those, you know. I mean, all, did Israel give them to the Al Jazeera to, you know, I mean, that, so that's, that's something to factor into that as well. I, mean, mm-hmm. I talked mm-hmm. to a guy who actually was a, a crew member. And he said it was excellent, and uh, uh, he had seen it, and he didn't participate in it. His name's Phil Turney, and he's one of the outspoken um, – there's a split in the crew. There's a crew that blames Israel, and there's another crew that sort of goes light on him. And, and, and Phil just sort of just doesn't seem to get featured in any of these things. 
But he said it was excellent, but uh, I didn't get a chance to ask him about the um, the, uh, the tapes because I was having problems with the phone. But anyway, that's another factor to consider. You might want to try to watch that. And uh, the, the day Israel attacked America, which is kind of an odd title, you know. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thanks, Kent. Sure, we'll look it up. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. All right, take it easy. Bye bye. Kent was just talking there about uh, the USS Liberty, and uh, that was when '68. Um, yeah, the Israelis uh, attacked a, a U.S. Navy ship off the, off the coast of Israel, supposedly because it was listening into, uh, you know, it was tapping into uh, communications at the time of the of the war uh, going on. Who knows? I mean, there's there's no hard evidence other than the fact that Israel did bomb uh, from the air the USS Liberty and killed. Uh, I can't remember exactly how many, but it was dozens, I think. Of, Sixty uh, some, I think. N- uh, U.S. U.S. sailors, yeah, and never really apologized for it. That interesting. <clears throat> that is interesting. If I have to watch the video to see, but if these are new recordings, where did they come from? Mm-hmm. That's uh, yeah. Well, this is the reason for keeping state archives. Mm-hmm. It's blackmail purposes. Yeah, further down the line. Well, I was I was rereading some sections from uh, Putin's speech at the the Veldai conference, um, oh, just over a week ago now, and there's some really interesting stuff in there. Where the we we mentioned it, I think last week, the comment about blackmailing, mm-hmm. where he was saying that there's, and they, I can't they, remember the exact quote. They have evidence that uh, it was very strongly stated, though. He said that we European like, basically are, we know mm. that European leaders are being blackmailed. No, maybe, maybe in one way or another. No, they well, are being blackmailed. I think he specified that the that's what the NSA and Western surveillance was for. Yeah, and then he went into that, and I just find it so interesting that I, I'd recommend everyone to read that speech that he gave, just because there is a lot in there. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, he's been saying it for a long time, and he's just getting to the point, like we said, uh, where he's getting a bit exasperated. And just <laughs> the more they don't listen, the more explicit he's going to be about uh, stating uh, the reality of of uh, what they do and how they do it, uh, the reality of the world that we live in. And thank God someone is doing it. You know, not that he isn't censored and maligned and ridiculed in the press, but he is basically just calling it out uh, for what it was and uh, for for what it is. And um, what annoys me about the whole thing is that it's not even really uh, remarkable, the truth about uh, how the world works and how the power elite actually operate isn't remarkable from a historical point of view. It's normal. That's the way the world has always worked, and that's the way the system has always worked on this planet. The only reason people can't believe it is because they've been lied to, and uh, partly because they've been lied to, and also because they don't want to believe that they live in a world where uh, uh, power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts ultimately or whatever. Um, they've been brainwashed with ideologies. They've been brainwashed with ideologies, but they themselves would not don't you know shy away from believing. They don't tend not to want to believe that the world isn't a nice place run by people who aren't very nice. But if they simply looked at history and looked at objectively the world, they would realize that's the way it is. And it's not remarkable. The idea that, for example, that um, that a power, an empire, would use mercenaries to wage its wars for it against other 
countries that it wants to uh, control or incorporate it into its empire is just, it's boring history. Yeah, that happened over and over again throughout history going back thousands of years. It's not remarkable. So why <laughs> why today then, if there's a historical precedent for it, why today is it, is it so exceptional? Why, why is uh, the U.S. so exceptional that it would never do that? It's an empire like every other empire, and it does exactly the same thing that every other empire did. Just re- read your history. Just read Tacitus. Exactly, and it's not strange. It's normal. It's boring. And speeches like his shouldn't be unique or exceptional or anything. I mean, exactly. we're talking about, wow, he said that, know. you know, but it, that should be the norm. This is the he's stuff like that we've been saying like for years. He's like looking like a saint because he's the only leader there that, that is saying these things, but it shouldn't be like mm-hmm. that. Yep. It's just nice to have a little validation every once in a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, we take it as a given, but I, I think it, even when the term American Empire is used, in any mainstream discussion. It's a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy, yeah, it's put in quotes, you know. Because we're With so a wink good. and a nod that we're not really an empire, but we'll keep pretending we are, or blah, blah, blah. They, I mean, most Americans, and for those that are politically alert and aware, what they want to see kind of clouds the issue because they want to see that no, we're not a democracy. We're not an empire. What well, we we are, or at least should be, again, is a constitutional republic. Mm. So they get back into this. But I'm like, you know, come back to reality here. You are a practicing empire. Of course they are. But they're not. If most, if the majority of people aren't even there yet, then well, that's that's a problem for the majority of people because they are so divorced from reality that it's just uh, it's fatal. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's it's a it's tantamount to walking outside and thinking that the sky's you know green and the grass is blue. It's completely delusional, and it 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 flies in the face of history and just the simple reality of 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 life on this planet and how it has always been. And it even flies in the face of of normal human nature, even leaving aside psychopaths, but even the kind of human nature that a lot of people, ordinary people would admit to themselves about being selfish and greedy and wanting things for themselves, they're not allowed to uh, uh, attribute that to their leaders. They don't allow themselves. Leaders can't be like that. So they're essentially saying they look at leaders and think these people, they're not human. Yeah, they're not human, but you're going in the opposite direction. They're not human in the psychopathic direction, but you think they're not human in the godly direction. Mm-hmm. Like they're so noble and, and honorable and, you know, uh, whiter than white that uh, because you for some reason you need to believe that about them well yeah maybe that has some psychological sense to it as well because it's pretty scary to think that you have someone in in power over you who isn't good but even if people just went as far as allowing for their leaders being the same as them and then investigate their own inclinations and their own selfishness and stuff and you know extrapolate from there, they could come up with a lot of solid answers to what's going on in the world, but they don't. They, they live in a complete fantasy where their human leaders are somehow not human. They're, they're, they're kind of godlike, and it's, it's asking for trouble, big, big trouble, and people are already in trouble. I mean, look what you've got in the U.S. under your leaders and in other countries as well, but particularly in the U.S. under your wanted leaders you've got a militarized police force who just go around and shoot people first and ask questions later. And you've got a, the, the African-Americans 
in, in the US, I'd say pretty much all of them, except for the ones working on Wall Street, of which there aren't many, uh, all of them are justifiably terrified of the police by this stage. Because over the past 10 years, the police have killed 5,000 people, a majority of them black Americans, and a lot of them for no good reason whatsoever, other than, you know, guilty of being black and walking down the street and looking suspicious, and you get shot for it. I mean, this reminds me of something that was sent in to SOT by a reader. She's been collecting reports. I'd noticed a couple of them over the last couple of years where the local police force is instructed by the city council to go in and just remove homeless camps and tent cities that are growing and growing in a lot of U.S. cities because people have lost their homes and jobs. And she sent me this link to, I've got to check it out, but there are dozens of different stories from across the U.S., only making the local media, but that's the first I've heard about it happening on a nationwide scale. They, there seems to be a systematic effort underway right now to disappear homeless people. I'm not just talking about removing their 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 tents. There are reports that um, bodies turning up, uh, homeless people are literally disappearing. No one knows where they're going. Where they might normally turn up at a shelter one night a week or something, they just don't return. And You know, uh, it's the kind of thing that it's so horrifying that you, you, of course, when you get an intimation that that something systematic and so evil might be going on, you would naturally not want to go there. But we live in these times where we've given so much leeway by our acquiescence that cycles will not stop to think for a second. You know what? Maybe, maybe what we're doing isn't the right thing to do. If they see a problem, the streets need to be cleaned up. Uh, they will just eliminate people. Um, we're talking about yeah, talking about cycles and in, in positions of power, which is a hard reality and that people need to wake up to. Um, there was a report, and it's an example of what goes on. And just extrapolate on this one: uh, a top U.S. political consultant who has been dubbed Doctor Evil has been caught on tape at an industry conference advising oil and gas executives to regard public policy as endless war and to play on people's fear and greed to lobby their interests. This is a guy called Richard Berman. He gave a speech in June in Colorado Springs and was leaked to the New York Times by a a a participant at the conference who said it just left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, so he basically was saying that he's pitching everything as a war, basically. He says to win the war, he, uh, people have to marginalize their opponent, their opponents. He says you can either win ugly or lose pretty. (laughs) And he's the founder and executive, uh, chief executive of of a Washington based, Washington based consulting firm, uh, in his own name, Berman and Company. And he says that wherever possible, he likes to use humor to minimize or marginalize the people on the other side. He says, I get up every morning and I try and figure out how to screw with the labor unions. That's my offense. I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to reduce their brand. And he talks about pumping money into the campaign. He's basically talking to oil and 
broadcast executives that this is a war, etc. So it's just indicative of, uh, I mean, this is one example of, of, of the type of uh, discourse and the attitudes that prevail amongst these elite people. They basically, everything is, they're just, they're vile, vicious psychopaths who see everything as a war and me first and everybody else last, basically. And um, it's just, it's, it's sad because you just get little, little inklings of this. But you really do need to just extrapolate out and realize that this is this is the standard uh, amongst our leaders. There was something else about the police. I haven't been able to find uh, statistics, but uh, there is there was a report about how uh, rapes have been increasing too. Mm. You know, and there was a um, there was a video um, caught like on a dash cam uh, of two policemen talking about a case they had just dealt with and and there's a girl who parks right in front of them and and one of them says go ahead and call the cops they can't unrape you ha 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 you know and they joke about it so apparently got um shared or taken to the texan police and of course they try to you know say oh this is bad we'll deal with it you know but in this year there's been several and you only get to hear about the few who were convicted i mean there was one of them Uh, where was it in Boyden Beach, the in Florida, um, who was raping a woman at, at gunpoint on the hood of his police cruiser? Um, there was another one who was threatening several women with arrest if they didn't comply with his sexual demands, etc. I mean, this that's been increasing too. So mm -hmm. Disappearance, shooting straight at people, and violence. And this is the people. These are the people who are supposed to protect you. Yeah, yeah. So we yeah. know where it comes from. When I mean, over the years, we've seen all these court cases where it does actually get to court. Mm. And what does the judge say? Well, I recognize you're a minor. She was a minor, but she was wearing certain clothes, so I'm going to let this one slide. Mm. <laughs> when it's coming down, like from on high, of course, these cops are going to, you know, start to live the same psychopathic values from the authority figures they mm -hmm. yeah. they rely on. Yeah, they've been encouraged to do it by psychopaths and it filters down, you know, throughout society. Um, it becomes the norm. Everybody agrees and you do it by deception because you're uh, a psycho and you get away with it. Uh, this guy, getting back to this guy, Berman, he said, uh, people always ask me one question. How do I know that I won't be found out as a supporter of what you're doing? He says, we run all this stuff through non-profit organizations that are insulated from having to disclose donors. This is total anonymity. People don't know who supports us. We've been doing this for 20 years in this regard. Uh, and he's, he's, told, he's, he's, on, he's on board with the fracking companies, the oil and gas companies who want to who use fracking. And he says that uh, his movement is to, uh, to depict them as, to depict anti-fracking movements as not credible. He says, what we want to do is brand the entire movement behind this as not being credible and anti-science, like global warmest. Uh, and he says, fear and anger have to be part of this campaign. If you want to win, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to get people to like the oil and gas industry over the next few months. If you want a video to go viral, have kids or animals. <laughs> oh, <okay. clears throat> There's nothing the public likes more than tearing down celebrities and playing up the hypocrisy angle. So he's just... Uh, if, he's, if Anders... Fucker 
bugger Rasmussen <laughs> is out of a job, he should totally look up this Berman guy. Yeah. Because his theory was that the entire anti-fracking movement across the world mm. was a Kremlin-funded operation yeah. to make people not like shale fracked gas coming from the U.S. From America to Europe. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty dire out there, folks. Um, Ebola? Anybody want some Ebola? Wait, quickie on Israel, okay? So this cartoon issue, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's Israel versus U.S. Mm. versus media distraction. But the stuff happening in Israel as well. There were, there were protests at the Alaska Mosque, which yeah. oh. periodically flares up, but now and then it flares up into the full-scale intifada. Yeah, well, they shut it down. They shut it down, and then someone got because shot. Because there was an attack, supposedly. Right. Uh, by a Palestinian, and they shut it down. Um of course, Palestinians are entirely justified in attacking Israelis at this stage. But um, so they shut it down, and even Abbas, the kind of quizzling Palestinian, uh, you know, leader of the of the Palestinian Authority, uh, said that this was an act of war, essentially, that by closing down the Muslims' holiest site in Jerusalem, the the Alaska Mosque, they, uh, that it was, you know, they're really they're trying to really provoke something, you know, mm. um, but. They have since opened it, I think, to limited access, but... They, they shut down Gaza. Exactly, they've shut down Gaza indefinitely. They've closed, closed the crossings indefinitely, they now say. So, I mean... They also passed a law giving mandatory 20-year, no, no appeal, no right of appeal, 20-year sentences to anyone caught throwing stones at Israeli troops. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, but of course there's this massive Israeli lobby that totally, I mean, if you want an example of just how insidious the the manipulation and lies coming out of the media are and the operation that goes on behind it, just look to the Israeli lobby and the way that they have been able to whitewash what is essentially a genocide, a slow genocide and torture of, you know, not just the 1.5 or 1.8 million people in Gaza, but the other 3 or 4 million Palestinians in the West Bank who are basically under a military occupation and have been for decades and are summarily executed and then periodically bombed with thousands of them being killed. And the Israelis can justify that somehow to the West and get support in the West for it. It's just, it's beyond imagination how that can possibly happen, you know, how it... Uh, well, we could probably explain it, but, you know, it's just, it's manipulation, it's lies, it's an information war, and it's covering up massive crimes against, human, against uh, humanity, and the murder of children, and these Israelis look like they're, it's only going to get worse, if it could possibly get worse, I mean, with these actions they've taken in the last week, um, yeah, I mean, they are going, it seems to me, they're going for the kind of final solution, the Hitler's final solution, you know, the same kind of mentality of people who uh, oversaw the Nazi extermination of uh, minorities, including Jews. Um, the same kind of people are operating in Israel now, and they're going to do exactly the same thing. One one thing about it is they take their time about it. I mean, what are they what are they waiting for? Go for it. What are they waiting for? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're sick of they're waiting for the right dating the right climate, you know. Yeah. The right climate yeah, under which they can carry it out. You 
there's an analogy that might work here um, because not all psychopaths are serial killers, but pretty much most serial killers are psychopaths. And if you look at the way serial killers work, many of them are sadists. Mm-hmm. And a long, slow death mm-hmm. is a lot more attractive. Yeah. Yeah, talking, I'm talking about psychopaths, which is the most important thing for the average person to understand, just that one concept, you know. I mean, there's lots of evidence, and there's a, there was a story this week, and I included it in my last article, um, a reference to it, which was that there was a story, uh, it was in the UK Independent, and it's it was on the topic of a British government exercise carried out in 1982, to test how the country would cope after 300 megatons of nuclear bombs, obviously from the commies at that time, uh, would be dropped within a 16-hour period. And these exercises run by the British Home Office, uh, basically like the, I don't know, what's, what's the equivalent in the US? Uh, um, whatever. DHS. Well, yeah, sort of. But basically the government, the US, uh, the British government, uh, established that maintaining law and order would become increasingly difficult as police would be busy helping victims of radiation fallout, etc. And that the players in the game would be civil servants, police officers, firefighters, members of the military. Um, and one of these uh, officers involved in this exercise and figuring out uh, how it would play out was uh, a scientific officer in the home office called Jane Hogg. And she suggested that the police should recruit psychopaths to help restore order. She said that it's generally accepted that around 1% of the population are psychopaths. These are the people who could be expected to show no psychological effects in the communities which have suffered the severest losses. Mrs. Hogg suggested that psychopaths would be very good in crises because they have no feelings for others nor moral code and tend to be very intelligent and logical. So, well, that's a fairly good description of the psychopathic mindset. It, what struck me about it was that this knowledge and awareness was there amongst yeah, the political elite at that time in 1982, mm-hmm. when I don't think anybody was talking about psychopaths apart from, no. you know, in, in, in uh, some uh, psychologists and uh, you know, in, in labs in different places around the, around the world or in, in research institutes, you know, that it wasn't in the common discourse, but apparently it was uh, well-known um, amongst political circles in 1982 in the UK. And that was when Margaret Thatcher was in Oh, just power. after she came into power. Maybe they used her as a <laughs> as an example. Well, the very, the very fact that the climate was considered to have become adjusted appropriately to come up with the idea mm-hmm. and to put it forward, to have it on the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I think her colleagues basically said uh, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they said no, it would be kind of, um, uh, more or less they said it would be it would be too dangerous to uh, to recruit such people and carry out a job which seemingly the uh, perspicacious of the people at the time of the British government uh, ministers, but um, yeah, basically said they were dangerous in a post-attack organisation because they would probably tend to 
for the reasons she gave, uh, they could go you know, go wrong as well. You know that they would uh, take over. But of course, you know that was all in the context of uh, of psychopaths being ne- being needed in positions of power uh, in the aftermath of a communist attack on the UK to restore order, i.e., in time of crisis where there was a threat. But what we have today is psychopaths in positions of power who have manufactured the crisis themselves to justify their positions. So it's kind of like just an inversion of what she was thinking. She was expecting a real attack and then psychos could be used. But the psychos said, no, we'll create the attack and thereby justify our positions because we're really good in a crisis. You know, we don't... uh, don't have feelings for others, no moral code, you know, we would show no psychological effects uh, when we see, you know, people suffering horribly and stuff, we'd be just like, yippee! Which kind of suggests that it's not so accidental, in a way, I mean, whether they were put in power throughout the years or they got there, I mean, there's still, there was still back then some kind of knowledge of what they could do to people. I think someone someone involved, either Hogg herself or her superiors, just didn't get the memo that 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 operation was already in effect. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or that's why they covered it up. No, whatever. That. Or there's different understandings of what a psycho yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. Um. I mean, the kind of psychos we're talking about who are, uh, you know, very powerful people. They can sink an economy overnight, they can uh, see to it that a general regional crisis erupts. Um, This kind of psycho is probably not the the one that becomes the medical description because psychologists and psychotherapists have actually dealt with them, i.e. they've never met them, you know. You're probably talking about a souped-up kind of psycho. Well, speaking about the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Um, are they coming? They're already here. They are? Yes. I hear them. What, what's that? I, I, I think I hear the Russians coming. Okay, so this is... Uh, there's a very funny movie made in the 60s called The Russians Are Coming. Here's some of the trailer from it. Big boats. Yes. Motor-powered boats. Yes. Motor boats. Yes. 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 You help us get bought quickly, otherwise there is World War Three, and everybody is blaming you. I don't want you going outside at all. I don't want you near the windows, you understand? Better yet, all of you stay in the cellar. You big, incompetent flatfoot. For God's sake, why is it we can't learn to live together? You're right, Norman. <laughs> the Russians are coming! The Russians are coming! 
So the gist of the story is it's some island off the U.S., uh, northeast coast, I think, and uh, a Russian submarine crashes into the shore. They they don't know where they are. They're lost. And so they come ashore uh, desperately trying to get someone to give them a loan of a powerboat or something that can push or nudge the thing off the rocks so they can get home. And there's just this hilarious story as they go around the island trying to get just access to a boat, but turns into this forest where people start getting paranoid. And I haven't seen the movie, but I think it's one to watch. Yeah, it certainly is a forest. It's uh, very relevant. It's probably it'd probably give you a good idea of the way people would uh, react, you know, these days if uh, if they were pushed far enough by by the Ministry of Propaganda to uh, to believe that the Russians were coming, you know. Uh, it would be a comedy of errors, for sure. Um, so, yeah, all the things going on. Libya, Libya is in... Libya is in ruins, basically, um, after the NATO bombardment and the overthrowing of uh, and murder of Gaddafi. Uh, it's descended into factional fighting, as is to be expected uh, in that kind of a situation where you destroy the infrastructure, the political and social infrastructure of a country, um, and then flood it with your mercenaries um, and your agents. 250 people were killed this year um, so far. But interestingly, there's a guy, um, his name is... Um, I wrote a couple of articles on it Bellage. at the time. Yeah, uh, the two articles. One of them is called uh, "State-Sponsored Terrorism: Western Journalists Embedded with Al Qaeda in Syria," and another one called "Syria Bloody Syria's Bloody CIA Revolution." And um, there were two guys that were heavily involved in that. There are two Libyan guys, and uh, one of them, one of them is today. He's, he's basically he was a, a close friend of Osama bin Laden's. And he was uh, part of the Western-sponsored or whatever rebels fighting against, uh, or fighting to overthrow uh, or overthrowing Gaddafi. Um, and one of them is called Mahdi al-Harati, and he um, there's a picture of him at the time. He, he after Libya, they went to Syria. Uh, he went to Syria, and he was leading the I suppose Syrian um, rebels or one faction of them. And there's a picture of him. Uh, uh, arm in arm, basically, with uh, a Sunday Times, a British Sunday Times photojournalist, Paul Conroy, who is undoubtedly a member of uh, British intelligence. Um, but just an example of uh, these guys. These guys are are, are paid uh, CIA, British intelligence assets, and um, Mahdi Al-Harati, who was, uh, who was one of these people, he, in August this year, he was elected, unquote, quote, unquote, uh, mayor of Tripoli. Uh, while the country was descending into chaos, you know, he's, I mean, and he's the CIA's man, basically. <clears throat> and then the other guy, um, Abdel Hakim Bel- Belhaj, uh, he was also friends with Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, you know, fought in Afghanistan and, and elsewhere. Um, both of these guys have ties to Ireland, strangely enough. One of them lived for 20 years in Ireland. Um, but he, this this other guy has just this week won the right to sue the British government for being for being tortured for having tortured him or rendered him or having assisted in the rendering of him to Morocco or somewhere for some kind of torture, and yet uh, he was 
I mean, that's an example of the company he keeps, basically, you know, in terms of, or if anybody who, uh, any of these rebels around the world who think they can keep company with British intelligence, you know, you're probably going to get tortured. You might get the mayor of a city out of it, or you might get killed, you know, but um, it's uh, it's all very kind of, uh, the, the guy who's the mayor of Tripoli, actually, uh, he was the guy who lived in Ireland for 20 years, um, he married an Irish national and has admitted that he was paid by the CIA to organize anti-Gaddafi fighters in 2011. Um, and according to an Irish newspaper in a report in 2011, uh, 200,000 euros in cash and expensive jewelry were stolen from his Dublin home uh, in 2011. And the paper reported that the criminal gang working the area found two envelopes stuffed with 500 euro notes during a raid on on his family home, on his family home, and the article relying on police sources said that Al Haradi, who is now the mayor of Tripoli, uh, uh, claimed that the stolen cash had been given to him by an, an American intelligence agency. Um, so I mean that was it's just so a, please a, give it back because. Yeah, got my back. Exactly. It's a kind of an interesting story where these guys are just picked up and they're used to be the leaders of phony revolutions in the middle the Middle East. They're given lots of cash, you know. They're living in Western countries, and then when they go and help out to overthrow Gaddafi, one of them gets a job as the mayor of Tripoli, and uh, and they're all tied to Osama bin Laden and you know Al Qaeda and stuff. And uh, oh God, it's all out there, you know. It's all out there for everybody, anybody reading this is from mainstream sources. They they do, they can't even contain it anymore. That this is the way it works, but like I said, it's a historically, uh, you know, it's historically no, norm, normal, uh, you know, in terms of mercenaries being used by empires to wage their wars of conquest. Uh, so just get over it, you know. Your government funds Al Qaeda uh, as a mercenary organization. Uh, deal with it. So yeah, Ebola. Speaking. What, Go ahead. Speaking of Ireland, uh, two weeks ago there was a big protest. That was the largest. It's now been topped mm-hmm. by another one. Yeah, even larger still. Government there is on the rack. So about the water tax. Yeah, yeah. Water charges. Wa- well, water charges. It's essentially a privatization of of water. You know, um, and they have they had a minister in the Irish government who was arguing for it. Uh, come out and say that uh, you know people have to pay for water. It's normal. It's not like it just falls out of the sky. <laughs> I actually said that. Said that. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, thank God. Okay. But it's about the water tax, and it's not. It's about it's yeah. the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's about austerity. It's about austerity. And the Greek in Greek. There's major protests in Greece. In Italy, a million people got out in Rome. Anti-austerity uh, protests. Yeah. Um, there's also been... Not Pro, much. These are all protests, by the way, that George Soros blames on Russia. Yeah. Yeah, but Russia's, you know, it's this, it's the art. This is Russia evil. dividing it's the, Europe. It's the commie menace, just the red, you know, the red threat spreading its tentacles over the entire world. This is what they're evoking, and it's kind of farcical and ridiculous, but, uh, you know, some people believe them, you know. Um, What's happening in France? There are... Mass protests here, yeah. Protests in France over... Um, over the killing of uh, this is from you know a couple of weeks ago at a down not far from we where we are 
that protest over uh, the proposed building of a dam. Um, there was one of the activists there, who's the son of a, a kind of a local politician, uh, uh, Remy Fraisse. He was killed by uh, the gendarmes who were there and kind of pitched battles with these uh, protesters who were protesting against the, the work on a on a proposed dam in the area that was going to knock down you know, large area of trees and old growth trees and stuff. And he was killed by a, a police grenade of some description. Um, so there's protests. Um, there's been protests all over France uh, about that. Uh, it's not just in that one area. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's good to see something happening. It's better than people just, uh, you know, completely ignoring it so um, yeah it'd be or, nice or, or buying any government suggestion that the person who was killed in some way deserved it yeah and they're, they're, they're demanding the protest I mean demanding the resignation of uh, France's interior minister Casanova um, and of course French Prime Minister Manuel Valls who is like El Blanco uh, the great white uh, Zionist crusader in France um, said that uh, the riots were an insult to the memory of Remy Fress, the guy who was killed. You know, I mean, uh, where did he come up with that shit? These people are complaining, rioting, protesting, whatever. And it's not riots, they're protests. They're genuine, justified protests about the, the murder, essentially, by the police forces of a, a young guy in the south of France. And the French Prime Minister, who's an art Zionist, who doesn't bat an eyelid at the murder of Israeli children, in fact supports it, of course is going to turn that around and say that these people are actually, you know, it's an insult to his memory. Did, well, do, do we think that Remy Fraisse actually wanted to die? What would Remy Fraisse have liked to happen if he could speak now and say something about the fact that he was killed while justifiably protesting against you know, the destruction of the environment by the French state. Would he like to think that people would be out in the streets protesting that? I'm pretty sure he would. But according to El Blanco, the great white Zionist crusader of France, Manuel Valls, it's an insult to his memory. He's turning in his grave that these people aren't just laying down in front of the forces of law and order and psychopathy in France and just taking it. That's what he's, that's what Remy would like them to do, which is kind of, yeah, it's, it's logical because that's what he did, right? No, well, no, that's not what he did. He actually was protesting. What? Shut the hell up, Valsic. You know, I'm tired of this argument. We get it all the time. And when you share a picture about uh, Ukraine, somebody dying in Ukraine. Palestinian kids. There's always one person who will say you lack respect for the victims. Can yeah. somebody explain that logic? I mean, I understand, but at the same time, you know, like it's out of respect for those people that you do that. Yeah. You. I mean, if I was killed that way, I'd like for somebody to share that picture. You know, mm-hmm. for somebody to say, "Well, this wasn't like completely forgotten, completely ignored." And people have been brainwashed by people like Vals, who are like. Oh, you, you, we have to respect that. It's a moot point. They just use it as psychopaths. For a psychopath, the whole world is against them because they are against the whole world. The other, yeah, the, but the other race. People get brainwashed into saying you're lacking respect for the victims when you expose what happened to them. Okay, um, they've got their authoritarian followers. Yeah, 
their minority, but still a sizable chunk of the population mm-hmm. who rally to. So Valves knows he gets support when he says what, that. What people don't, what people, what people don't mean when they say that that is disrespectful to the uh, to the memory of the dead or to the dead people is that the official narrative, like take nine eleven for example, they've, they've, they've said it repeatedly about nine eleven. Um, the official narrative about 9-11 is that those people were killed by evil terrorists and in a way die, you know, well, not just in a way, they, as far as the official narrative goes, they died as heroes. And, you know, and then to see the government responding and taking action in their, to, to avenge them, it's, uh, you know, it has meaning. It gives their deaths meaning. But if you come along and say, well, actually, that's not what happened. Uh, they were killed by, uh, effectively, by their own government, and they were used and abused. They were dupes, essentially, and their memory is being used to do the same thing to other people. Well, that's a very unsavory thing for someone to have to contemplate, uh, and also, the very you're, you're positing an idea that the governments that they look up to are evil. Yeah. So they'll use whatever they can think of to try and get you to shut up and stop questioning why these people died. It's done and dusted. We have the nice, comforting, fuzzy official narrative which makes us feel better. And if you come around, come along and start stirring that up, we're not happy. We want to go back to sleep. Leave us alone, please. Okay. That's a plausible narrative for most people who would say such things. But then for someone like Val's, um, it's even more convoluted because his narrative is somebody those other people is using this against me. Do you remember Netanyahu's yeah. statement about how the uh, the Palestinians mm. capitalize on photos of dead Photogen- children yeah. in airstrikes because Photogen- that gets them political kudos. They score one over us in the war against us. And when, when you have a psycho in any country, everybody's out to get me. The entire to, it's yeah. all paranoid. Yeah. When I kill someone and I get some kind of negative repercussions or there are negative repercussions for me because of that. It's because people are to get me. The dead person themselves are to get me, uh, you know, through their legacy and their family members or anybody who supports them are out to get me. Why are you out to get me? Yeah. I just killed him because it needed to be done. And the journalists are out to get me. And everybody's out to get me exposing the fact that I am a murderer. That's not fair. That's their logic. Mm-hmm. it's psychopathic, it's anti-human, it's unhuman, it's inhuman. That's what we're dealing with. And the, natu- the way they do it is just naturally to turn the tables and just twist things to the total opposite of what they actually are. So you get Val's saying what is obviously totally opposite to what the truth is, but by using those words and framing it in such a way, mm. it appeals to a, it an emotional level yeah. to people and just gets them to, it derails their thinking, shuts yeah. off their critical thinking and gets them to feel. Exactly. And that's all these statements are. Like when you see someone writing this, those are just the words that they're using to express a certain emotion. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's that thing that you talk about on the show regularly, Joe, the system one, system two. Mm. You've got the emotional impulse that is creating a narrative which the conscious like verbal mind then puts into words and the words don't have to have anything to do with what's actually going on and that system one the, the unconscious kind of emotional nature wants balance mm-hmm. and comfort and quiet and peace you know it wants things to be all just it doesn't want any upset but when you come along with a, a disturbing truth 
that forces them to challenge their beliefs and cha- forces the system one to challenge what it has come to believe or been programmed to believe. Well, then that's imbalance and it's upset and they have an instinctive visceral reaction to it and it comes out in an emotional language uh, and it's very it's quite intelligent and quite smart and can come out with something that it knows will hit home you know even though it's uh, objectively or logically nonsense it will um, it'll hit home with a lot of people because it resonates with a lot of people with their own their own kind of unconscious uh, desire for you know everything to just be nice and calm and peaceful and balanced Mm-hmm. And people will go with it, you know, and nobody wants to critically think. Nobody wants to face into the the kind of complex and disturbing uh, truth or uh, reality of the situation. Yeah, it they just gets to, go back to be to sleep. too much and they want to. But because good good people or people who are aware also right. may say those things. It's like, stop it, it's too much to bear. Yeah, well, yeah. actually, people have said that. I've, I've had someone say to me directly, and it's it was an amazing... Uh, confirmation of that whole uh, system one and system two, the way that the human mind essentially works, uh, where when I was positing uh, that the reality, political reality, the reality of the world, the way things work, uh, is not the way most people think, and in particular, not the way this person had been programmed to think of. Eventually, after a short discourse on this, the person responded by saying, I don't like to think about that because it hurts my brain. <laughs> and he said that seriously. He wasn't joking. He wasn't using some kind of a, an analogy. I think he, he was being honest when he said that he felt physical pain in his brain when he was forced to consider something that he did not believe in, that he had uh, an already uh, fixed idea about, uh, and that was invariably it's comforting. It means it's a, it's a, the idea that you're on the side of good, everything's, God is in his heaven and everything's all right with the world and even if there's some bad things, we can overlook those and everything will be all right and everything will continue on as it always has. When I was saying exactly the opposite, it hurt his brain, uh, physically, apparently, because that's what he said. And, um, and there's even, there's uh, neurological studies have shown that this actually is true, that it actually, the areas of the brain when people are forced to engage in that kind of uh, critical thinking about things that they uh, have been programmed to believe are, are true, and when they're forced to think about them as being not true, areas of the brain that are associated with pain light up. So people do actually feel a physical pain in their brain when they're forced to confront an uncomfortable truth. And that's horrifying. It means we're all screwed as a whole, humanity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, In other news, though, on uh, the upside, yeah, total darkness is coming. <laughs> yes, total darkness it's is coming. <laughs> <laughs> so look on the bright side, get your flashlights out. No, actually, people in Bangladesh, all 160 million of them, recently had to get their flashlights out if they had one mm-hmm. because there was a countrywide blackout in, ba- in Bangladesh as the power grid collapsed, there's 160 million people. Uh, the electricity was cut off nationwide. For how long? In Bangladesh. On Saturday. Uh, but all through the night as well. One of the worst blackouts in the world's recent history. Uh, even the Prime Minister's official residence was left with no electricity. 
Uh, and this is a small but extremely densely populated uh, country experienced one of the worst uh, blackouts. Yeah, and and they claimed that there was some problem with the uh, because they get a lot of their um, they get their electricity supply from or there's a connection over into uh, India. India. And they said that there was some problems on the other side, but the Indians turned around and said, no, there's no problems over here. We don't know what's causing this. So apparently nobody knows why a country of 160 million people suddenly went black. It stopped at the border. It didn't affect anywhere else. Yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, we can maybe, you know, you could posit some kind of uh, other electromagnetic uh, reasons there, but it has to remain a bit of a mystery at this point, but it's it's kind of uh, symbolic for, for the state of the state of the planet, you know. Um, everything just went black all of a sudden. Little little story on Scottish independence, where he jerked my chain. Um, this is uh, from a British newspaper. I think it was the Times, actually. Yeah, Scots would back independence if a referendum was held today. This is, uh, what, a little over a month since the referendum, six weeks, not even. Uh, since supposedly, as we've talked about this, uh, the, the, refer- well, the referendum was stolen, very obviously, for anybody who looks into it. But now enough time has passed for them to turn around and admit the truth. That for some reason, all those people who voted supposedly against independence six weeks ago now have suddenly woken up and realized that the British elite are a bunch of toffee-nosed tossers and we hate them and we should have nothing ever, anything to do with them ever again. And, yeah, we want to be independent now. Oh, but shit, oh, we missed our opportunity. Too late. Sorry. Oh, bummer. Oh, well, next time. You're locked in now forever and ever. It's just so, ah, it's nauseating. You know? Terribly sorry. Sorry, Terribly. chap. Oh, it's a real bum rap you got there. Yeah. Another good news is that um, uh, Dilma Rousseff got re-elected in Brazil mm-hmm. instead of this evil Neves guy who that's, wanted to that's sell a country actual to. good news. That's actual good news. That's the only one. <laughs> That's really one. good news. Uh, well, we'll see, but it's, it looks like she wants to actually uh, keep the U.S. away. And in fact, uh, Brazil and Portugal have just signed a deal where they, based on the NSA scandal, where they you know, got exposed that they were spying on the Brazilian president, they're going to throw in cables across the ocean to have their own communications because... <sighs> For all this time, any communications were going through the U.S. or via, you know, dependent on American companies. So yep. they're like, bye bye. They're gonna have cables across the ocean to where? To from Brazil to Portugal and to oh, the rest Portugal. of Europe. So, so well, that, that sounds like a job for the cable snippers. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> if they're gonna put cables down across the Atlantic, they need to uh, station, uh, per- uh, permanently stationed a, a anti Mossad cable cutting submarine, <laughs> uh, you know, device down there that will, you know torpedo them as soon as they get within 100 feet of the of your cables you know just blow them up no questions asked you know um has anyone looked at what's going on in burkina faso yeah burkina faso is right beside uh, right next door to sierra leone with and mali with and uh, with the ebola thing and burkina faso was the country when uh, earlier on this year this summer uh, uh, the plane uh, disappeared the uh an air algeria flight was flying from somewhere south of Burkina Faso to uh, to Algeria, and it just crashed in the desert. Uh, I don't think that's related, obviously, to what's going on right now. I think it was taken down by some kind of weather anomaly, uh, which is happening more and more these days. But um, Burkina Faso, it's used as a 
it's used as a transit point, uh, uh, a funnel for Sierra Leone and Liberian diamonds. So, um, but the official story is that the dictator there, who has been in power for ten or fifteen years, maybe twenty-seven years. Oh yeah, twenty. Oh, there you go, twenty-seven years. Uh, he tried to pass a law that would allow him to continue to be uh, president, and uh, there were mass protests and. Uh, the, the the joy amongst the the protesters quickly kind of turned turned a bit sour, I suppose, whenever they realised that uh, the, they saw that the military had actually taken over, and instead of a, a civilian dictatorship, they now, for now anyway, have a military dictatorship. And of course, you know, Western governments don't really care very much as long as there's a, a dictator there that'll play 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 the game. The Western way, they they don't mind, and this is a French colony, a former French colony. So you can imagine that the French will be uh, heavily involved in what goes on in there because the, the French, the French are heavily involved in all of their former colonies. Yeah, in Africa, and now the U.S. as well. The Washington Post pointed out in May this year that the U.S. has a spying hub slash drone base, I think, in Burkina Faso, and has done since two thousand seven. The drone base, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the empire's all over this, you know, and it was created because, I mean, the strife and the conflict in those countries has been exacerbated. People put it down to, well, it is partly to do with the fact that after the French led, after the French left, uh, or during their, their their control of the country, uh, when it was a part of their French empire, uh, they kind of arbitrarily divided up Africa in different ways and different countries and um, but that's true for, for many places in the world. But uh, since then, they've always maintained their people in power because mainly natural resources. And as Neil just said, the U.S. is interested in Africa these days for drone bases because it's this Orwellian world we live in now where the all-seeing eye of drones and their missiles can can reach anybody anywhere, apparently. So, yeah. Bola. Yeah, Ebola. Um, Ebola is still there, threatening. The U.S. is now sending 6,000 troops. Mm. Great. And they're going to have something to do now in Burkina Faso. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently uh, there's a story, um, entire villages disappeared. Mm-hmm. That in Sierra Leone, Ebola deaths have been seriously underreported. The death toll from Ebola in Sierra Leone is apparently much greater than previously thought, with entire villages killed off by the virus. Uh, apparently up to 20,000 people could have succumbed to the disease by now. Um, according to Roni Zachariah, who's a coordinator of operational research for Médecins Sans Frontières, which is a French intelligence medical operation, um, the Ebola impact on Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone is in fact underreported. He said the situation is catastrophic. There are several villages and communities that have been basically wiped out. In one of the villages I went to, there were 40 inhabitants and 39 died. Whole communities have disappeared, but many of them are not in the statistics. So that's another big world, marker. Yeah, the world well, World Health Organization. Just to give you a reference, the World Health Organization puts the total number of dead at 4,951 out of 13,567 reported cases. But this guy's saying that 20,000 people have died. Yeah, they're just yes. the week before, they were reporting at least 20 deaths a day in Sierra Leone. Yeah, so that figure is probably closer to the truth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so 
Well, there was a, uh, there's been travel bans all over, except in Europe, actually, and in the U.S., hmm. which is interesting. Hmm. Wasn't there some story about a nurse in the U.S. who... Yeah. She wasn't having any of it, and she up and, she, she up and left. She wasn't, she wasn't big on the whole restrictions and staying in her house and all that kind of stuff. So, so they chased a, her down, no? She went for a bike ride, and apparently they made a bit of a show of it, but apparently they've, they've backed down. And she says she's fine and there's nothing wrong with her and she's not going to be uh, held under house arrest uh, or quarantined uh, for, for no reason. So, um, yeah. Well, there's a Canadian government uh, or somebody talked to the Canadian press actually uh, telling, saying that he believes a mass vaccination program will likely be required to stop this Ebola outbreak yep. in Canada. And the, the pharmaceutical shares went Went up by 25 exactly. or something. Exactly, so they're targeting so, the vaccinations at this point. but Yeah, and they're using rabies and adenovirus in the vaccine tests. Mm -hmm. So you know what you're going to get if you get forced to take one of those. But um, there was an interesting study, too, where they, um, they did it on mice, but they discovered that certain genes and certain mice were actually kind of immune to Ebola. The, the most they got was like... Um, uh, I can't remember all the details, but it was like a race in temperature and things like that. And so genes, people, and we know that the that what you eat is very important, actually. So if you're not on board with the paleo or ketogenic diet, it's highly recommended because one of the effects that it has is that it creates, a, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, apoptosis or apoptosis. Apoptosis, yeah. Mm -hmm. Where you, um, basically it's the suicide of the mutated or the bad genes and you can actually become more immune to certain uh, viruses. So ketogenic diet, look it up, lots of fat and meat. Yep, and stop eating. It appears yep. to activate genes that can only help you. Yeah, uh, well, the, the interesting thing about the mice was that um, the uh, the ones that got it worse, that died from it, had liver inflammation and internal bleeding. And the ones that didn't die had a, genes related to uh, to vessel blood vessel repair and a production of infection-fighting uh, blood cells. So mm. if you... Yeah. Now, the part they leave out is that it's not that some have the genes and others don't, and, oh, it's Russian roulette, whether you do or don't. We all have them. But they're some, activated or not. In some, it was turned on. Right. In others, not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The key difference being the quality of your environment, especially the internal environment, what you put in your mouth. So stop eating your Ebola cornflakes and have an Ebola bacon. Joe, Joe. That's getting old. Uh, well, it's, as long <laughs> as Ebola's around, you need a... But don't uh, <laughs> audio on that one. Um, yeah, just talking about Bangladesh and it going dark in Bangladesh. Apparently, um, our wonderful scientists have uh, revealed that dark matter, which is considered the scaffolding of the universe, because it provides a framework for its structures, is being gobbled up, gobbled up by dark energy. <laughs> so dark matter, which is the framework for everything that exists is being eaten by dark energy. I smell a conspiracy. I reckon the dark lords are behind this. Dark energy is swallowing up dark matter, leaving a vast emptiness in its wake, according to a study conducted by researchers in Portsmouth and Rome. Mm. Um, 
If the dark energy is growing and dark matter is evaporating, we will end up with a big, empty, boring universe with almost nothing in it. <laughs> is that a real quote? Yeah, says <laughs> Professor David Wands, a member of the research team at Portsmouth's Institute of Cosmology and Gravitation. So, as above, so below. You know, it's it's the nothing for fans of uh, the never-ending story. The nothing is coming and eating everything <laughs> up, and it's being fueled by psychopaths in positions of power because that is their ultimately that is their nature. It's like a black hole. It's like an eating machine that destroys everything in its wake. So maybe this is true. That's I mean, I would have laughed it off, but uh, because they don't know what dark matter is and they don't know what dark energy is, they just come up with these words to 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 balance come up with a theory to balance their equations. Yeah, but uh, maybe it's true. Something dark is eating something else dark, and we're all going to end up in a black hole. And it's not going to be fun there, I can tell you. Everybody knows it's not fun in black holes, even though they don't know that black holes actually exist. <laughs> but anyway, that's science for you. Um, yeah, so what's happening this week? Instead of looking back at the, at, at the, at the week well, in review, what's happening this week? Well, there's, there's some other big news, though. There is? Yeah. What big I news? I think it's big. Yeah, go on. Give us your big story there. Well, this winter was going to be the great gas war winter that would oh, yeah. potentially see Europe suffering and shivering in the cold because of those evil commie Rushies, Ruskies. Um, that kind of did start happening. The beginning of October, Gazprom halved uh, what was coming through the gas line to Slovakia after complaining that Slovakia, Hungary, and Poland were rerouting to a Illegal, illegal, according to their contracts with Gazprom, reverse flow gas back into Ukraine so mm-hmm. that Ukraine would have enough mm-hmm. this winter, irrespective poor. of paying off its gas debts to Russia. They're feeding their poor Nazi neighbor. Exactly. Feeding the beast. Feeding the beast. Um, so the, the ball actually got rolling on that threat. Russia got started doing that. Immediately, uh, Barroso in the EU said, appealed to Russia to turn it back on. But I think this is the event that forced the meeting that took place this week in which they signed a short-term deal, mm-hmm. Russia and Ukraine, that will see Ukraine pay what are those? $3 billion of its $11 billion debt to Russia. It's an agreement that had long since been tabled. Nothing new was added except for one thing, which is that Brussels... And the IMF actually coughed up some of the money yeah. in order for Ukraine couldn't pay it. They mm-hmm. couldn't pay three billion. That's how screwed the country is. So Brussels has basically just bailed out Ukraine, Bail even out though it's not a new country. Mm-hmm. Russia has promised to cure gas deliveries until March next year, and at least to outward appearances, there is not going to be the Great Gas War of. 2014-2015. And they even gave them a discount, right? From what I read. Yeah, like a discount. a discount of $100 mm-hmm. per yeah, cubic meter. The funny thing is, is that that's the, that's the offer they made way back when. Way back when. I mean, that's the one. It was rejected by yeah. Kiev in June. And it's the same offer that's on the table. And, you know, the, but the thing is that they rejected it just because they couldn't pay, probably. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted to pay a lot less and they were haggling over the price. But, um, you know, finally now they've agreed to it. Funnily, in the Milan, uh, Porosh- apparently it's it's kind of unclear what happened, but it appears that Poroshenko came out of his first meeting with Putin and and said, okay, we've agreed on the parameters for, for selling the, the, the gas 
deal. And then um, he must have heard that, you know, from his advisors that actually that was the deal that we just rejected. So he Poroshenko scheduled another new meeting with Putin in the afternoon and then came out and said, oh, there's no deal. We haven't agreed on anything. And so now that's the deal that they just agreed on. So it's basically what Russia was saying the whole time. They finally agreed to it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, in the east, there are separate elections taking place in Donetsk and Lugansk today. Latest news is that the incumbent acting prime minister, Zakharchenko, mm-hmm. is leading the polls in Donetsk by 80 plus percent. Russia has said it will recognize the results of these elections, which means de facto they're going to recognize the leadership of these two separate Ukrainian regions. Um, these guys had already, I mean, they've been in power basically since since the coup d'etat back in February. But Russia never officially recognized them. This might be an interesting change to watch because, I mean, no one is being fooled by last week's elections in the rest of Ukraine where you know, the great and glorious democracy is supposed to have arrived for Ukrainians and most regions got turnouts of like 30, 35%. Mm-hmm. Here, 55%. Barely half of people bothered to vote. You we're going to see, it looks more and more like you're going to see uh, if if they can do it, uh, if if they're not stopped by the by the Ukrainian elite and their and their Western master, masters, the uh, it would be natural and there are signs that um, Eastern Ukrainians who are fighting or helping fighting against the Kiev forces are kind of moving towards a kind of a rapprochement with, uh, with uh, the groups within the, the Kiev military because they all are realizing that they've all been sold a really shitty deal here. Uh, they're all dying for oligarchs essentially and and that there may be a sentiment along those lines amongst a lot of Ukrainian people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not in Eastern Ukraine as well, you know. So, uh, but that's certainly going to raise a red flag for the for the Poroshenko's and the Victoria Newlands and and fuck the EU. And the- yeah, the um, the the more extremist battalions from Kiev are threatening uh, overt military coup in the next six months yeah, if something doesn't change in their favor. Yeah, as long as it's not the Nazis. Well, the Nazis don't have any any real representation in Ukraine. If it was the Nazis, you'd know that it was a Western, a NATO coup, basically. You know, um, if it was the Banderists. But anyway, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Um, so, like I was saying earlier on, what's happening this week? We always look back at what happened last week. But what's happening this week? Oh, we're going to go into some predictions here. Um, well, we've had a Russian sub and we've had a Russian plane. I guess it would be... A Russian truck train? No truck. A Russian mechanical bear. Oh, a large one. They're going to stomp across. No, that's not what I mean. What's happening this week is that in three days, it's the fifth of November. Uh huh. Because next week's show, the fifth of November, will have passed, and everybody should remember remember the fifth of November for the gunpowder treason and plot. Etc. Um, most people probably know this, but the, that was the Guy Fawkes uh, plot, supposed plot to blow up uh, 
Parliament kill James I and it was Yodi falsy flaggy, you no? Know? Yeah. To blow up James I and all the other um toffee nosed uh, Tossers. Uh, Tossers. Tossers elite uh, in the UK. It would have been such a good thing, but it didn't happen. It seems like it was it was very much like an FBI terror plot in sixteen oh five. Yeah. You know, over four hundred years ago. They were doing the same thing. And this is what gets back to what I was saying I was saying earlier on about history. If you look at history, what's happening today has happened repeatedly over the past X number of thousands of years. Repeatedly, over and over again. It's the normal. It's the, it's the norm. This is how the world works. In 1605, everybody thinks that in 1605, uh, Guy Fawkes and some co-conspirators, you know, tried to blow up the House of Parliament with barrels of uh, of gunpowder. Um, but apparently, this was it's actually in the news this week, not just for for because November the 5th is coming up, but because um, the earliest written report of the gunpowder plot that described the bravery of Guy Fawkes under torture and the foiling of his cruel and detestable crime is going to be sold at auction. This is a six-page letter which was written by one of the key figures in the drama, Robert Cecil. Now, key figures, he's Sir Robert Cecil, the first Earl of Salisbury. He was basically James I's right-hand man, and he's basically, he's kind of like a Dick Cheney. The uh, Cecils went on to become the family, didn't they? Yeah. He's During probably related to, to yeah, Cecil Rhodes. Well, Cecil Rhodes came out of it, but yeah. even the whole century before that, the Cecils, yeah, exactly, yeah, were they were they the they were the kind of the civilian elite, and he was you know had the ear of uh, James I, and um, it seems that um, what actually happened was Guy Fawkes wasn't caught in uh, the, a vault underneath Parliament; he was caught on the ground floor, and um, there is. Uh, evidence that he was basically set up. Uh, someone within his group, he maybe he, he and a group of other people had some plot to do something. We don't even know. This is the problem. We don't know. It's basically the story of Guy Fawkes is, is fake because uh, actual, what actually happened, and historians have looked at that and said that the official story is totally um, unreasonable. It's no, there's no way that they could have done what they said, what they say that Guy Fawkes did without it uh, coming to light, the authorities getting wind of it. Uh, so it seems that what happened was that he was basically, you know, manipulated by some kind of a, a, a kind of a, um, an informant for the state uh, to be at the House of Parliament because the gunpowder in all those barrels was apparently dud. It didn't even work. So, and Guy Fox was a, a kind of veteran of Spanish wars and stuff, and he knew very well how to, you know... Um, get a hold of some proper gunpowder and carry out some kind of attack like this, but the gunpowder wouldn't have blown up because there was something, I think it was extremely damp or it was mixed with something else. It was basically not proper gunpowder. It wasn't ever going to go off. So it seems like the entire gunpowder plot was uh, was like a modern FBI plot where someone was manipulated into being in a particular situation and then um, the blame cast on him. And of course, Guy Fawkes was a Catholic and... Um, there were a group of um, Cecil, this guy Cecil, who was directly involved in it and who wrote this letter telling the king about it. Um, he was heavily involved in an influential London group at the time known as, strangely enough, the War Party. And it wanted to push James I, the king, into a confrontation with the Spanish Empire, which was Catholic. 
from which Cecil and his cohorts uh, hoped, among other things, to extract great personal profit. Uh, so they, it seems that uh, this uh, spy master, essentially Cecil at the time, uh, set up the gunpowder, gunpowder plot and got a few patsies in to take the blame for it, um, wrote bogus confessions, etc., etc., and used it to put pressure on James I to essentially launch another war against Spain, against Catholic Spain, because this was a Catholic plot by Guy Fox and his other Catholic conspirators, supposedly. Um, and and they, and they got a war out of it. Um, so that's what's going on. So when you remember, remember the 5th of uh, November, it's not about some guy who tried to, you know, take down the ruling take elite system. And, but sadly failed. What you need to remember <laughs> is that terror plots and phony terrorism uh, have been a mainstay of history going back thousands of years. And certainly the Guy Fawkes 5th of November is one that goes back 400 years and they were doing then, the ruling elite were doing then exactly what they're doing today. So if you want to remember anything on the 5th of November, just remember that. And also watch Beef of Vendetta. <laughs> Very good. All right. So I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. We Next week we have, oh, yes, we have a special guest on. A special guest. He is Professor Daniele Ganser, author of NATO's Secret Armies, I believe. We'll be discussing false flag terror. Going back decades in Europe. Yeah. NATO stay behind armies and blowing up people to influence the political uh, climate in various European countries to favor the establish of, establishment of the American empire. So um, he's done a lot of work on that and has a lot of very interesting details about how it all went down, lots of hard facts uh, that can't be disputed, even if, you'd, even if you'd like to, even if it makes you uncomfortable. You can't dispute them. So uh, that'll be, yeah, that'll be next Sunday. We'll be talking to him. So we hope you will tune in then. So thanks to our caller, Kent, and thanks to all of our chatters who have been having lots of fun in the chat room as usual. So until then, have a nice week. Have a nice week. Bye-bye. See ya.